Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, I had a great conversation with Monique Pasher, the CEO of the Canadian Airports Council. It's something that not many people would know much about, but they are the, I guess the lobby group is the only way I can describe them for the, for the airports in Canada. They represent more than 100 airports and all 26 uh, airports in the national airport system. So obviously, um, you know, it's uh, an important group uh, association. Um, and uh, found out that uh, the airports obviously uh, are important to our economy, more so than many people recognize. Um, she indicated that uh, airports contribute about $35 billion a year to GDP in the country, that uh, have almost 200 direct employees uh, with a payroll of $22 billion. That's big. Um have uh, overall have a, an impact on 350 plus employees uh, in the country. So, um, you know, it's a big part of our economy. And it's, of course, it's important, uh, just not just for personal travel, but for business travel, for cargo. Um, it, it, you know, it's an in- integral part of our economic uh, environment. Yeah. I mean, I flew in last night, uh, unfortunately, extremely late, and I'd say at least a third of the individuals on that plane were immigrants. So it's incredibly mm-hmm. important to the flow of people moving into our region for business and trade, for tourism. Uh, I just think the air transportation system and airports are incredibly important to our economic uh, dynamism here in Atlantic Canada. We just need to make sure we, we you know, get back to where we were pre-pandemic. We're certainly not there yet in terms of the numbers and in terms of the, the, the um, uh, diversity of access. I think Halifax is maybe doing better than most other places, but at the end of the day, we need a strong and robust air transportation system in Atlantic Canada with lots of choices and lots of destinations um, um, to support our economic goals. And and uh, and, and Monique, uh, as at that, I, I I'm sorry I wasn't able to join you for that conversation, but I think at the head, sort of helping to lobby, helping to frame. The national discussion around the airport sector, I think, is very important. Well, I recently wrote a column about the uh, transformation of airports uh, in the country since the government's decision in the 90s to transfer them to local airport authorities. It's really been, uh, it's probably one of the best decisions the federal government ever, ever did. You know, since the time of transfer, um, the growth in the uh, uh, air travelers has gone up 140 uh, percent from about 60 million to 160 million people per year before the pandemic. Obviously, it's not there right now, but it's in recovery mode. Um, and uh, you know, it contributes uh, a lot of money to the federal government uh, since the transfer. I think I got this number right. There's there's a lot of numbers in this. What uh, <laughs> I think they've uh, recouped uh, six billion dollars in annual rent. Now, prior to transfer in the in the sort of 20 years before transfer, the government spent about a billion dollars on the national airport system, a billion over 20 years. Since transfer, the airport authorities have spent $30 billion and they anticipate spending another $28 billion in the next 10 years. And of course, that's led to probably the most modernized airport system in the world, uh, 
Canada is actually considered to have one of the best uh, airport systems in the world as a result. That would never have happened under management by the federal government because they just didn't have the money or didn't have the motivation to spend money on airports. But you know, our capacity has been tremendously increased um, as a result. And Manette, uh, you know, emphasized that, uh, you know, there are challenges coming out of the pandemic that still uh, need to be dealt with. Um, one of the biggest ones, of course, is that traffic went, you know, down by about 25, uh, 75% to 25% of what it was before the pandemic. Uh, all the airports took on huge debt to survive. We talked to Joyce Carter about Halifax, which went into debt an extra 140, more than a billion dollars for the industry overall. Uh, they still they still have to pay back the rent that was you know postponed during the pandemic. Um, and one of the things that the CAC is trying to do is to advocate that instead of using that rent for uh, for the next little while, use that rent uh, to help pay for infrastructure that's going to be postponed by the fact they had to borrow so much money to survive during the pandemic. So, you know, lots of challenges, but lots of good news also uh, out of uh, what's happening with the national airport uh, system. Yeah, and I would just say one last comment here that, that I think you're absolutely right about the transportation system, the air transportation system. I'm not so happy with how the uh, rail the, the, you know, the, the, the privatization of rail has worked out for this region. And I would argue no. for the country as a whole. Now, the telecommunications, I think that's worked out tremendously well, except for the fact that we have very high priced internet uh, compared yeah, to the rest of the that. world. Yeah, well, but the, <laughs> but, but the bottom line is it was a very innovative sector. You know, imagine if we still had government owned uh, telecommunications companies now, right? We'd be like Zimbabwe. So I think mm. this 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 move to deregulate these industries made sense, but and I think you're absolutely right. It it worked out very well on the airport side. I would say not so uh, positively on the rail side because again, these sectors all have a public interest. Just because yeah. the government privatized them doesn't mean they're not important to the economy and not important to the public. Uh, you know, in ways that other sectors aren't right. I mean, if the movie sector didn't work out, well, who cares? Uh, so I think I think it's important to understand that these sectors have a public interest. But but you're absolutely right when you say that the air the um, the privatization or it's not it wasn't really even privatization. It was no. sort of moving it to community ownership. Really, that worked yeah. out very very well. Yeah. No, it, uh, they are basically nonprofits where they have to reinvest everything. Uh, that is surplus back into the airport. So it's you know, it's a great model for the uh, federal government. You know, they, they they basically gave away all the responsibilities, but kept the ownership of uh, of the airport. So we talked about Halifax is a good example. It was, it was worth less than ninety million at at the uh, takeover. The assessed value of the airport was less than ninety million. They spent seven hundred and fifty million. <laughs> Improving it and doubling its size. So, you know, federal government, taxpayers didn't put a cent in that. That was all passengers. We talked about airport uh, improvement fees. You know, I warned uh, uh, the board at HIAA when I was a board member that, you know, you're going to get addicted to this. It's the taxation. Like, it's, you'll never want to come off it. You know, it's just going to be there perpetually. And they said, oh, no, no, it's only temporary. Until we, we get our, you know, facilities back to where it should be, then we won't have, we won't need it anymore. Well, that's gone by the board. 
my question to Manette was, you know, when can we start to see a reduction on those airport fees? Because at some point you're caught up and yeah, there's going to be new development, but shouldn't the airport pay for that through its regular revenues? Does it always need to have airport fees, especially at the, you know, the, the size that they are right now? And, you know, got a little pushback on that, understood uh, why, but, you know, when I, when when you think about twenty five or thirty dollars, whatever the number is, by airport, and it, and it happens to you know if you transfer through an airport as well now, um, that's a that's a that's a piece of the change that you pay for a ticket, and people don't recognize that. No, and then the only good. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say it gets rolled into the ticket price, so you don't even really notice it. So if the price goes up, you don't know who to blame. So it is, yeah. uh, it, you know, it, it behooves them to try and find ways to control that uh, those costs for sure. One final point, because we talked about this in the past as well, is that we lost our interprovincial service. You know, from places like Halifax to Sydney and Moncton and Fredericton and Charlottetown. I asked her about that, and uh, you know. She basically said, until there's an interline connection with whoever wants to serve that regional market, it's not going to happen. She mentioned players like PAL who are trying to do it, but they need a relationship with a national carrier to be able to say, we can take you from, you know, Sydney to Toronto through Halifax or something like that. We can get you to Halifax and then the national carrier will get you to Toronto. Until those are in place, it's going to be it's going to be a while before we're going to see regional services like we did before the pandemic, which is disappointing news, I think. But I guess that's the reality. So that's a long introduction, but a very interesting uh, discussion with a really important segment that touches a lot of people's uh, lives one way or the other. Here's our conversation with Monette Pasher, the CEO of the Canadian Airports Council. We are pleased to be joined on the Insights Podcast by Manette Pasher, the President of the Canadian Airports Council. Welcome to the podcast, Manette. Thanks, Don. It's great to be here. So let's begin by learning a little bit more about your background. Uh, You're originally, I think, from Nova Scotia. In fact, you work uh, from Nova Scotia, which is interesting for a national organization. Uh, Might want to comment on that. And you started your career, as I understand it, in the tourism industry. Not a bad background for being in the airline industry. Tell us about your career path to your present role with CAC. Sure. Yes, I'm a proud Nova Scotian. I'm actually based in Cape Breton Island. Um, So I do um, often work remotely. And and our head office for the association, obviously, is in Ottawa. So um, lots of air travel between the two places. Yeah, so I did start my career in the tourism industry right here in Nova Scotia, actually. I worked with the uh, Tourism Partnership Council and then moved to Prince Edward Island when they were starting up a new organization um, called the Tourism Advisory Council, which is the first organization I ran between government and industry partnership when I was in my 20s. So worked in the tourism industry for a while and you know, I think it really is closely linked with the air industry. Um, the biggest issue that seemed to always come back was the need for more air access. And I think that's still a hot topic today. Um, so that kind of led me over to the airport side of the world. And um, I really, really loved aviation. So I've been working with Atlantic Canada's airports for about 15 years now. 
um, played a key role during the pandemic, obviously, which was a very challenging time for for everyone and and for the air travel industry. So um, that led me to um, end up working with our national organization just over a year ago, um, and I became the permanent president uh, in the fall. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, Now, CAC represents uh, more than 100 airports in Canada. People might be surprised by that number, including all 26 uh, airports that are part of Canada's national airport system. They're called NAS airports as a result. Tell us kind of what the role is of CAC. Yeah. Um, Canada's Airport Council really is the voice of Canada's airports. So we, you know, do that collective advocacy for policies and programs that really empower our airports to um, work towards the best interests of their communities and, and passengers. So things that we need around policy with the federal government, um, as our airports are federally regulated across the country. So really part of that core work is to ensure our airports have the appropriate regulations and programs and policies. I'm always uh, working towards safety as our number one priority. Um, but also efficiency and to improve innovation in the network. We're working closely together as a group of airports to move forward, to move our sector forward. Um, we work quite collaboratively and engage with um, industry stakeholders, the carriers, government, um, really creating a sustainable and integrated aviation e- ecosystem in this country. And, and we really put the passenger at the core of, of everything we do as, you know, our airports are community-led organizations. So it's very important to us. You recently held your annual conference in Edmonton. Uh, tell us uh, about the focus of that conference and maybe what are the key priorities for your industry looking forward? Yeah, I, I we just got out of Edmonton and had some really great meetings and discussions. Um, I guess, first of all, I would just say in terms of our priorities, you know, Canada's airports, we really take our job very seriously. Um, we know how vital air transportation is to Canadians and how critical it is to get it right. So we did have some great discussions and meetings um, at our annual meeting with all the partners in the ecosystem. And that focus was really about the future of air travel in Canada. We wanted to look to the future. Um, It was all about innovation. Um, We discussed what the future airport might look like, um, how we airports really have to take a long-term view of infrastructure assets. We always need to be looking 10 and 20 years out um, and building for the future. So we're discussing those things, how we can really incorporate digital efficiencies um, using facial verification and technology into the travel journey to really improve those processes for passengers. So these were some of the things that we were talking about in Edmonton. Um, Also a really interesting discussion around baggage and innovating the baggage process. So we had a session about what um, baggage would look like in 2040 and, and some very interesting dialogue there. Um, that, you know, it could be AI incorporated in, and we may not be that far from some of these things. Um, We also held our first innovation day where a number of our airports came together to meet with startup company founders to explore new ideas that we could incorporate technology and and new innovations into our industry. So um, it was a a really great meeting and lots of discussions afterwards as well. 
I, I'm supposing there was a fair amount of discussion about recovering from the pandemic. <laughs> you know, it's it's going to be a bit of time yet before air traffic uh, returns to the pre-pandemic levels. And there are some barriers to achieving that, as you know. We'll talk about that maybe a little later on in our conversation. Sure. Uh, but we would also like to better understand uh, the economic impact of the airport sector in Canada. This is what the podcast is really, to some extent, all about, uh, uh, helping people understand uh, what each sector brings to the economy. Can you tell us about the number of direct and indirect jobs that your industry supports in Canada? Yeah, um, thanks for asking that question. I don't get asked, asked it very often, so I am certainly very happy to talk about um, how our airports impact Canada's economic future because I view Canada's air tra transportation industry as at the heart of our 21st century economy. You know, without competitive and efficient airport and airline industry, Canada's business networks, social institutions really wouldn't function to their maximum potential. It's so vital. And we really enable Canadians to connect not only with each other, but just having families explore other parts of the world. And it really is part of our core economic future for this country. So our airports support over 355,000 jobs and uh, account for 22 billion in wages across the country. And 194,000 of those jobs are direct jobs um, around the airport community. So quite a substantial number of people that are working at airports. Um, and at our peak, Canada's airports were moving over 160 million passengers um, in 2019. So we know that went down quite a bit um, during the pandemic, around to 40 million a year. So um, we took quite a dive, but we are building back. And uh, in 2022, we're estimating the, the year's numbers aren't in yet uh, fully, but we're estimating it's going to be around 117 million passengers for 2022. Well, that's a pretty good bounce back, but obviously a ways to go still. Um, have you undertaken an economic impact study for your sector? Yes. So the last economic impact study that we did was in fully was in 2016. We were actually going to do one in uh, 2020 again, um, but then the pandemic hit. So it's about time to do one again. Um, but I have been told by uh, economists that our 2016 numbers would still be um, quite similar to what we would find in 2019. So I think the numbers that we have are still quite accurate. So tell us what the uh, economic impact uh, of your members are in the Canadian economy. Sure. So our direct economic impact or economic output is $48 billion. Um, Canada's airports obviously are facilitating travel and trade and investment. So a really big number when you include the direct and indirect and induced impacts of this sector, it's $79 billion. Wow. Do you have a percentage of GDP that might represent by any chance? Yeah, I don't have the percentage. I just know that um, in front of me, but our GDP is uh, $35 billion in total GDP in Canada. It's a big number, no matter how you count it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about tax for a second. Uh, this is something that a lot of people probably maybe not realize, but the Canadian airports pay a lot of tax to the three levels of government. 
Can you tell us on an annual basis how much tax is paid to the various levels of government? Yes. So in total, tax is paid by airport employers and employees is estimated to be $6.9 billion to all levels of government annually. That's from the last uh, economic assessment that we did. And that breakdown is about 70% of those taxes go to the federal government, 24% provincial and 6% municipal. So very big numbers. That, those are big numbers. <clears throat> You may know this, Manette, but I was a founding um, board member of the Halifax International Airport Authority, so I have a kind of a special interest in this sector. I recently wrote a column about the transformation of the national airport system since the federal government's um, decision to transfer those airports to community uh, airport authorities. I think that was in the early 1990s that they started that process, if I correct. It was. I understand that collectively the NAS airports have invested more than $30 billion in capital to modernize the national airport system. And for comparative purpose, I hope this number is right, in the, in the two prior decades uh, to these transfers, the, the federal government had only invested about $1 billion in airport infrastructure. So. Obviously, there wasn't a lot of money going into the airports prior to transfer and then a lot afterwards. I want, I want you to tell us about the impact of what all this capital investment has had on air travel in Canada since transfer. Yeah, those numbers are correct, Don. Um, and, and also, thank you for your service, your community service on the HA board and, and leading that uh, transfer from the government and the divestiture of the airport to the community. Um, you know, lots of board members take part um, from around the Halifax Regional Municipality and, and we're grateful for their service, um, including yours. So our airports, um, yeah, have made a big impact since transfer. Obviously, um, I guess just to go back, you know, look, even looking at passenger traffic, um, before 1990, I think we moved about 66 million passengers across the across the country, and then I mentioned, you know, now we're up to 160 million, so that's 140 percent growth. Obviously, couldn't do that kind of growth without a massive increase in our infrastructure. So the government really divested Canada's airports in an austerity measure. You know, um, they wanted to to save some money at the federal treasury. But I think there were also some pretty smart and innovative thinkers at the time as well. And they really approached this holistically. Um, they divested the airports um, so they could be com commercialized as they knew government couldn't do it, couldn't invest in them the way that they needed to in order for them to be an economic abler for their communities. So rather than turning them over to the private sector, they, they put the control in the hands of those closest to the passenger and whose economic future matters, who does it matter more to than the community that you represent. So I think it was uh, a lot of a lot of thought went into that as well. And, and Canada's airports have really flourished under the under that model of course the pandemic aside which was um which was quite challenging for this model so i guess before march 2020 if we looked at the onset of the pandemic canada's airports really delivered the highest level of service to the traveling public our airports were 
as we talked about, a major contributor to the growth of our country's aviation sector, regional and global connectivity. We welcome millions of visitors to Canada annually. And we also help take new ideas take flight, you know, pioneering technologies like electronic passport gates, AI, baggage. Um, We really had uh, many award-winning airports that were a source of pride for Canada. So our airports investing in that infrastructure has helped us facilitate trade and cargo, connecting the north and moving goods to the north and ensuring that our high values um, goods get to global markets quicker has been um, has been a objective of our airports as well and increasing that trade volume. So a lot has happened since divestiture, as you mentioned, over um, 30 billion in investment. Um, for our airports across the country. So significant uh, infrastructure at play here. In fact, you might be interested. One of the reasons I was interested in joining the board of HIAA at the time is that I saw it as an important economic development tool, uh, not just for Nova Scotia, not just for Halifax, but for the whole region. And uh, in a recent uh, podcast with Joyce Carter, she was uh, telling us that uh, the you know the size of the of the terminal building has been doubled since the uh, transfer, and and it's a completely different airport as you know yeah. um, from where it was when it was taken over, and um, I think uh, I think at the time of transfer she said that the 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 asset value of the airport was eighty eight million dollars. <laughs> And since that time, the airport authority has spent seven hundred and fifty, you know, million dollars on the airport. So ten times the value of the airport over that period of time. So um, you know, as, as my column pointed out, um, the airport system in Canada was basically modernized, and, and I, as I understand it, and you might be able to comment on this, it's now considered one of the best airport systems in the world as a result of what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, prior to the pandemic, award-winning airports, um, the envy of many, our our model was very well regarded. I mean, it is user pay, which is unique. Our our model in Canada is unique. Um, You know, in the UK, they have, you know, privately run airports. In the US, there's a lot more political involvement in our airports. So the Canadian model being not-for-profit or, or they're technically non-share capital corporations operating as a business, um, but with the, all the profits going back into the infrastructure. So it's a very unique model, and it really is one that's worked very well for Canadians. It's also worked very well for our federal treasury. Um, our airports have contributed in, in lease payments, uh, rent, rent back to the federal government of um, over $6 billion since transfer. Yeah, and that's, a, again, um, the structure, I think, is something that most people don't understand. As a non-share organization or a non-profit, they're actually obliged to reinvest everything uh, back into the operations of the airports. So there's no profit motive here. Although, you know, there's some people who think maybe now it's time to do the full Monty and uh, do the full privatization. I don't know what your point of view is on that, but certainly the current model has worked extremely well. It has. Uh, So obviously, uh, as we talked about earlier, the pandemic had a significant 
the impact on air travel and airports. You already talked about the you know going from 160 to 40 million passengers. That's a big decrease. But can you give us some idea of what the combined financial impact of the pandemic uh, has, has been on the NAS airports? Yes. So our um, over two years, um, our airports, as we are that user pay model, we had no users, right? So our airports cut costs, did everything that they could to reduce. Um, but being essential infrastructure obviously had to stay opened uh, so healthcare workers could move and vaccines could get across their country and all those great things that we're, that we're proud to do. But we really were starved for revenue. So our airports had a loss of over $4.5 billion in two years of revenue. But we've taken on, because of that, another $3.2 billion in additional debt. Um, and that was with reduced staffing and curtailing most capital projects and doing all the things that they needed to do to cut costs. So um, taking on $3.2 billion in additional debt is a significant number for our airports. Normally, that would be invested into infrastructure, but it was just um, to keep the lights on, essentially. So um, that was the, that's the challenging piece of the pandemic for us. Yeah. Again, in the recent podcast with Joyce Carter, CEO of the Halifax International Airport Authority, she indicated that their airport had borrowed $140 million to bridge the financial problems. Was this the approach other airports took as well, borrowing? You mentioned that's that $3.2 billion. That was all borrowed money, was it? It was, yes. Yeah. So um, certainly the case that Joyce had mentioned um, was the case across the country. Um, Pearson alone, our, you know, our nation's largest airport, moves over half of our country's air traffic and, and a significant cargo hub, um, took on a billion dollars in debt. So um, really um, massive amounts of debt in order to get through this time with no users. So our airports were able to do that. They have the liquidity to do that, but certainly you can't do that without um, curtailing some capital projects and reducing staff and making all those smart business decisions that were needed. You know, the pandemic wasn't a few months, it was years operating um, at 30% volumes of what we would normally operate and being able to generate that revenue. So it was a, a very challenging situation and certainly challenging um, <clears throat> on the bottom line, but we're turning a corner and in, in build back mode now. So it's it's nice to be um, talking about new problems these days. Yeah, you you mentioned earlier that the federal government uh, it's got the best of both worlds. Doesn't have to invest in the in the properties and it gets rent. It's pretty good. I like that. I'd like to have that model for my, <laughs> my investment portfolio too. Um, so it collects. Uh, it's collected. Since the transfer, six billion, I think the number is that you mentioned. But how much does it does it pay on an annual basis? Just to put it in sort of context. Yeah. So in the um, 
it is a percentage of revenue. So um, oh, okay. this number can vary every year, but in the in the highest years, I think the highest was over 400 million, 419 million pre-pandemic. So around that 400 million mark when we when we had reached our peak in terms of 162 million passengers moving and, and uh, significant revenue, that's what the government would have received um, in terms of airport rent from Canada's airports. Now they were a very supportive partner in terms of reducing that rent um, during the first year of the pandemic, which was appreciated. So um, they didn't take that payment when obviously the revenue was quite a bit less. Uh, was that a permanent sort of uh, situation or does that rent have to be paid back at some point in the future? It would be nice to be a permanent situation, but no, um, it, for our largest airports, it was a rent deferral for the four largest. Um, for the others, it was permanent, so that rent uh, does not need to be paid. Right. Uh, so as you mentioned, the federal government did suspend rent during part, of, at least part of the pandemic. Um, your council, as I understand it, has been advocating that those rents should be used to help fund infrastructure investments that have been delayed or in some cases postponed by, by the, um, the pandemic, by the national airports. What is the status of those efforts? Can you give us kind of where you are with the federal government on that, on that request? Yeah, I would say ongoing, you know, this recent budget was certainly not an infrastructure budget, you know, it was a inflation reduction budget. Um, but I do think that the government understands the impact of the pandemic on our essential air transportation infrastructure and network. <clears throat> you know, they certainly uh, seem to understand that. So in modernizing the passenger journey um, is important to them, increasing efficiency of our network. And we can't do that without investment. We need to be able to keep up with that growth. And we need government to be a financial partner with our airport authorities in these essential national transportation assets in order to do that. So it will create an economic return for Canadians. I mean, we already talked about what, how large that economic return is for Canadians and the federal government. So um, having their help in investing um, to work with us to invest in our infrastructure will help ease that upward cost pressure from the pandemic. Um, it would mean, you know, less less that we would need to increase fees in order to um, fund this infrastructure. So um, we have $28 billion to invest over the next decade. And, and I'm hopeful and I'm going to remain hopeful that we'll get the support that's required from our partners in government uh, to continue to work with us to improve the passenger journey for Canadians. Are there any other requests that you have at the federal government to help airports recover from the negative impacts of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, a big one is this infrastructure piece, um, the need to green our assets. So um, being able to apply to infrastructure funding for greening our assets as well. And, and also the other big important piece is innovating the passenger journey. So moving towards um, facial verification at our air border. Um, so we're able to use the entire process of e-gates smoothly and seamlessly and passengers can um, use technology to move through our airports quicker. 
I think all of these things we need to continue to work with government on. They are our partners. Um, there are partners at our air border. There are partners in security screening. They just recently announced last week a new verified traveler, trusted traveler program, um, which are very pleased they're taking a first step towards risk-based security screening which we've been working on for some time, piloting both in Pearson and Vancouver. So moving forward on that program, expanding it out across the country to more airports, making it easier for Canadians to get a verified traveler um, card would be a great um, approach in, a, in improving the efficiency of our air travel network in Canada. This is a personal question I, I want to ask you, and you're the right person to ask this question. Yeah. You know, uh, like many, I have a Nexus card. So I've been, you know, done the security check stuff, deemed to be a safe traveler, yet I have to through, go through exactly the same process of going through security as every other Canadian. Is, is, there, is there anything going to be done to make that process less onerous, more streamlined in some fashion to recognize that, you know, you have been deemed a secure traveler. Yes. So absolutely. That's what, and I'm glad you asked, that's what the government announced last week in this new verified traveler program. So as a Nexus card holder, it's only starting though, Don, at six airports across the country. So I think Halifax and Ottawa will, will come a little bit later. Um, and we are asking the government to roll this out more quickly to all the airports in the country, but it will mean less divestiture of your items. So similar to pre-check travel in the U.S., you know, you're not going to need to take your laptop out. You won't need to take your liquids out, your light jacket off. So making that process smoother and a lot quicker. Um, you'll be able to, you know, go in not only that dedicated line, which you could do before with your Nexus card, but you'll actually be able to move through that line as a more verified, trusted traveler. Well, I think that that's good news. Um, it's you know. great news. We're we're very we're very <laughs> pleased. We just want to keep it going. There's you know there's a, there's a backlog for Nexus. Um, you know, CBSA has moved. Um, I think to process 70,000 uh, applications, there's still 260,000 odd applications to get through in the Nexus. So this is going to create more people who are going to want that card, which is great, but that requires an interview both in Canada and in the United States. And we view that, you know, becoming a verified traveler or a trusted traveler in Canada should be a Canadian program. And, and I think would like to move towards being able to uh, simplify that process for Canadians. Well, you know, I think so. I think that make a, a huge difference. And, uh, you know, so uh, let's move on to uh, some recent criticism um, that has been associated with the recovery process, I guess, <clears throat> in terms of wait times and lost luggage. Obviously, as demand rebounded, uh, it looks like everybody was caught a little off guard by the speed of the rebound. Maybe that was part of it. The other part, of course, is that a lot of people decided during the pandemic it was a good time to retire <laughs> and move on. Uh, so obviously there's shortage of workers everywhere, baggage handlers to pilots to air controllers, as I understand it. Uh, some of those problems seem to have moderated a little bit, uh, but um, 
What else uh, can be done to further improve the air traveler experience and facilitate a more streamlined processing of air travelers through airports? Yeah. So when we go back, um, you know, we we always said in before restart last year, I think it was kind of May when things really started uh, to get challenging uh, just a year ago now. Um, we always said that we couldn't uh, turn our industry off and on with a light switch. You know, it is a highly complex interconnected system. And we lost so many employees, laid off so many employees for years um, because this pandemic went on for over two years and really, really, you know, our, our sector was down to about 30%. So um, when we when it was time to turn that light switch on, people were ready to travel and really it came back very fast. So went from about 30% up to 70% in a matter of, you know, six weeks, it was too much for the system to handle. And it was quite challenging in that, you know, people who had worked in the sector for 25 years had now retired. And we had thousands, tens of thousands of new employees that were very new on the job. So um, it was a, a very intense time, certainly never the experience we want for Canadians at Canada's airports. But I think today, fast forward today, um, our airport ecosystem is certainly in a dramatically different place than it was a year ago um, when we were restarting and, and recovering from that two-year shutdown. So all partners in our ecosystem have been improving processes. So we have government agencies, they've hired even over hired staff and our airlines as well are offering a prudent summer schedule, but they're back beyond 2019 staffing levels, um, even with a schedule that's not at 2019 levels. So I think all partners are really ramping up to get ready for the summer and trying to make up for, for, um, the network of workers that might not be as experienced as they were pre-pandemic. So I think putting putting those uh, measures in place as well. Um, I always like to say, though, you know, travel's busy at peak time. So I just think it's important that we view that, you know, passengers should still expect lines at peak times. Lines are normal in this industry. It's about how we adopt processing to make sure that those lines are moving and moving efficiency efficiently. You might look at it and go, that's a long line, but it's moving, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we need that's what we need to get to. And that's going to take technology, like we talked, the verified traveler, moving more people through Nexus, more people through a Canadian program. That's what's going to speed up security screening putting biometrics at our border, which is facial verification, which they do in Europe. So people can use those e-gates and not have to go to an officer for every single person. I think those are the measures that we need to move towards. And not everyone's going to adopt technology. They don't have to. But having some adopt technology means that the line's going to move more smoothly for everyone. So I think making sure that our technology is opt-in only so that people who are comfortable with that process, comfortable with that choice can make that choice, but it will benefit everyone at the end of the day. So those are the things that we really want to see move forward on with our government partners. Well, CAC, as you mentioned, has been advocating for the use of more biometrics to process travelers. Uh, But just 
what is it about biometrics that will make a difference, that will improve the process? Is it just that you don't have to speak to a human being if you get facial recognition? Is that is that what it's all about? Yeah, I mean, it really, so whether you call it biometrics or people call it facial verification, so <clears throat> you've really, you've already been pre-vetted. They've already looked at your face to say, yes, this is you. So I think it's important just to always say this is opt-in technology. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. It's for those people that feel comfortable with doing that. I mean, we see people do this to unlock their iPhones already, right? Or, or diff- use it in different um, facets of their life. It's certainly all around us. Um, having that at our air border would really make a big difference. Um, right now, border agents have to physically approve every single person. But if we're able to just use our phone, your phone verifies you and tells you if it's okay for you to go go through or not, they can pretty much red light or green light you and you could go through with a machine. So that's what makes the e-gates work effectively. We see this in many countries around the world. It's operating effectively in Europe. So so that's what we would like to move to um, in Canada. We already have e-gates. We just can't fully use them until we get to this process. I was going to say, I've always had the experience of using facial recognition coming back to Canada, especially, I think, through Toronto. It was so smooth. It was unbelievable. It was like, like remember the old Nexus machines? You could never get them to work properly. You had mm-hmm. to move this way, move that way. Yes. But these are just so the next generation, obviously. They work so well. It was un- unbelievable. Yeah, and you're doing that through your Nexus program. So it's a great example. And I think as we move to this next stage, you would still have to see an officer to say, yes, you are who you are and you can come through. When we move to that next stage, you could take your phone, swipe it and walk through without seeing someone. So that's what moves it to the next level. Yes. One of the things we... uh, we're talking to Joyce Carter about was the fact that, you know, we're in a unique situation in the airline industry right now. There's actually more demand than supply. You know, they're, they're trying to catch up to the supply part, but you know, the fact that they've limited some flights out of the big airports uh, speaks to the fact they don't have probably the full complement that they need to serve the marketplace. So, you know, obviously there's still a gap. There seems to be the demand seems to be growing faster than the ability to supply, and then another problem that that has surfaced uh, for Atlantic Canada that I don't know you may not be able to comment on this given your role, but we lost sort of all the interprovincial routes, especially from Halifax, Halifax to Fredericton, Halifax to Charlottetown, Halifax to Sydney. You 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 probably are impacted by this given the fact that you travel quite often. But, you know, that was one of the casualties of the pandemic for our region. I don't know if you have any comment on this, but how do we get that interprovincial, you know, connection back? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think we're not unique in Atlantic in Canada in this way, you know. Regional connectivity has been, rural connectivity has been the last piece to come back throughout the pandemic. When I look at our recovery for Canada's airports, you know, um, across the country, we're back to 85%. You know, the largest of that is the hubs and and certainly some airports that have low cost um, traffic that came back quickly (coughs) with low cost carriers, excuse me. 
but regional connectivity is quite a bit slower. Um, so some of our smallest airports are, are only back to 50% of pre-pandemic levels. There is a, a, a really big gap here. And I think there's a few reasons for it. I mean, certainly um, availability of aircraft, availability of pilots and the workforce to bring that back smoothly, certainly um, just not the entire system not being back to 100% as well. So um, in Atlantic Canada, I think the biggest thing that will get us there in terms of rebuilding that regional connectivity will be will be interline. You know, it, it's not going to be, it has to be a carrier that's going to feed into the network to connect. In order for it to work, huh. we need to have interline service. So whether that's, you know, a regional c- carrier like Pal Airlines or PassCan, like there's a few of them in the country. It's like what they have out west, you know, they have WestJet Connect, right? We need that regional canar- carrier to feed into the interline network of the mainline carriers in order for this service to be viable. So I think, you know, a lot of gains are being made on that. Um, It's certainly a top priority, I know, for all the airports in Atlantic Canada and even for Atlantic Premiers and ACOA. So there's a lot of people discussing this issue and and wanting to move forward on it. Um, So I hope we'll get somewhere soon. Yeah, I think it's obviously, from an economic point of view, it's actually, it hurts the region not to have that connectivity within the provinces for sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, you can't take a ferry overnight to go to a meeting, right? Like we need air <laughs> service and yeah. and we have to be able to ke- connect Nova Scotia to, or, you know, New Brunswick to Newfoundland without flying to Toronto to get there. So I think, you know, these are the stories that I hear. Um, and certainly it hasn't been easy, but I do think that there's a lot of great minds working on it and we will get there. It's uh, very important. Absolutely. Now, another topic I'd like to just uh, talk about uh, for a second are airport improvement fees um, that really have allowed airports to finance the infrastructure investment uh, uh, in a significant way. I remember in the early days when I was on the uh, HIAA board and um, we got the ability, basically it's a tax, (laughs) taxing function. We got the ability to tax uh, travelers, users, to help pay for the upgrades of infrastructure. It made a lot of sense. I remember saying at the time, you know, it will be get will be very easy to get addicted to this taxing revenue and give it up. So, you know, this is one of the things that I still wonder about. Those, uh, those airport fees obviously have increased over time. Now that airports uh, have been largely modernized, do you expect airport fees to moderate given that much of the needed infrastructure improvements have now been made? Yeah, I would say, you know, our airport improvement fees have increased quite modestly over time. Um, You know, when I look back, even at the last 10 years, you know, some of our airports didn't increase them over a 10 year time span. So there have been some increases um, in the restart of travel as it was necessary given the debt taken on and the need to invest in infrastructure. So while our airports are modernized, um, air travel is growing and we need to meet that growing demand. So 
Our airports have $28 billion to invest over the next decade. Some of that's to keep up with state of repair. You know, it can cost, you know, at a small airport, $10 million just to rehab their runway. You can imagine, Don, having looked at books for an airport before, how long it would take for a small airport to raise that kind of revenue. So airport improvement mm-hmm. fees are essential in order to operate this infrastructure because it is a user pay model. So that's how this infrastructure is funded. And and I look at it too in comparison, you know, $25, um, $28 um, on a ticket, you know, in some cases, it's the cost of a bag fee, but but it's actually funding essential national transportation infrastructure. Some of our some of our airports are like mini cities. So it really is going to good use, tremendous use. But um, I think it's going to be needed going into the future. I think the way government can help us is if they help us invest in that infrastructure, then it means that those costs don't need to go up very much because we're having help to invest in our infrastructure with key partners, uh, recognizing the economic output. Um, of our airports. So I think that's really my view on on the way forward. But we do need to continue to innovate. And we do need to continue to invest, you know, some of our airports like Montreal is nearing capacity. Um, They're an international hub and their international flights need are are growing. They're back to over 100% already in international activity. So I'm going to need to expand that airport. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a topic that probably the traveling public needs to better understand how that airport fee is actually benefiting them. You know, if you think about uh, things like uh, biometrics, uh, somebody's got to pay for that. <laughs> it will ultimately be the people who travel, uh, you know, but that that makes the travel experience better Then there's value in that in that fee, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, our airports need to be safe and secure and investing in our mm-hmm. infrastructure and our runways. And, you know, that's what keeps our airports going. That's it, exactly. Uh, just a couple uh, uh, final questions. Uh, we talked earlier about the challenge of the shortage of workers that is, you know, uh, leading the industry to, you know, play catch up with demand. Uh, I wonder, you know, in your opinion, what more needs to be done to address the labor shortages in the industry today? Are there are there things that your um, association is is advocating for? Yeah, I would say so much has been done in terms of rebuilding this workforce, and <clears throat> kudos to many of our um, partners, aviation stakeholder partners, for the aggressive um, training and. Um, immigration programs they're undertaking to move forward. Um, But yes, of course, there's still more to do. Um, You know, certainly um, people have changed their habits throughout COVID and it's uh, challenging to get people to do some of this work. So I think we need to continue to promote our sector. Um, One of the pieces that I think is very important when you talk about regional connectivity and some of the concerns that you raised earlier is certainly pilot shortage. You know, pilots will move up from the regional carriers to the mainline carriers And I think, you know, making sure that we have that pilot feed, but making sure that we're actually looking at this sector as uh, and and this role as a essential role in Canadian um, 
in our Canadian air transportation network. It's essential to Canadians. It's essential to keep our economy moving. And it's quite costly to become a pilot and they don't have access to the loans that they need. So I think supporting flight schools, supporting um, through labor market development programs at the federal government um, works with our provinces. I think working with our provinces to make sure that this career is supported, it really is vital and it directly relates to our connectivity um, across the country. And it is certainly felt more in rural and regional markets. So I think we need to look at that and address it. There's a short-term piece, but there's also a long-term pipeline here as well. Um, same goes for Nav Canada, our, our air um, navigation services. You know, we lost a three-year pipeline of air traffic controllers by um, shutting down this sector for two years. And it's challenging to restart it and get back to where they need to be. So um, they have aggressive training programs in now and, and moving forward. And I think they're doing a terrific job and need to keep working on that. So um Focusing on the labor market development of this sector and how we can um, support it with through federal policies and programs is certainly um, a step that's needed. Yeah, your your organization has hasn't done sort of an estimate of the manpower requirements for the industry by any chance, have you? Not in terms of the broad requirements. No. So each yeah. partner is kind of doing their their piece. Yeah. Right. Uh, finally, uh, when do you expect the air travel industry to be fully recovered and growing again in Canada? Yeah, so I mean, in some cases, we're going to be some of our airports will be back there this summer, certainly over 100% to 2019 levels. And another year away, we should be fully back um, across the country in terms of um, pre-COVID levels of traffic. And then it'll be growth, right? And I think we're seeing some of that growth. Um, I think air travel has proven quite resilient even to <clears throat> what might be economic headwinds. You know, people want to travel. This is how they want to move. And I think we need to be here to support them and help make it easier and more efficient for, for passengers to get on their way. So you're saying by 2024, <laughs> it'll be back to a growth um, model for the industry. Yeah, I really believe so, Don. Um, we're certainly we're headed on that path, and for many of our airports, we'll be back there this summer. And you know, I think that the pieces of the sector that haven't fully recovered are business travel, government travel, um, meetings and events, right? So, but the leisure part has come back so quickly. So, I think as these, it might take till twenty twenty five for <clears throat> certain segments to fully recover, but overall, we're getting there. Well, well, that's pretty good. Uh, well, listen, I'd like to thank you, Manette, for joining us on the Insights Podcast and providing such a great overview of uh, the airport sector and its challenges and, and its important economic role that it has in Canada. A lot of people sometimes don't, for, you know, uh, <coughs> kind of forget how important air travel is to the, our economy. Uh, we wish you uh, continued success going forward. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Don. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.